Jack Spierko, another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, April the 1st, 2020. This is episode 2630 of the Survival Podcast. You know, TSP has done some April Fool stuff in the past. Uh, but we've never been, it's never been a big thing. Like, you know, you're going to get one every year from TSP. I'm going to commit to you guys. I put it out on Facebook this morning too. I'm not doing any April foolery. Um, today, uh, humor is great in a pandemic. We try to keep the humor up, but I'm not doing anything that could actually be considered a fool's. Uh, I said I'm a prank y'all on August the 1st this year. So if you remember that, maybe you'll be prepared for it. And if not, maybe you won't, but no April fools, even though it is the beginning of a new month and the typical fool's day. Um, today we're actually going to have, um, kind of a two parter. I have about a 20 minute segment that I'm going to be doing on, um, COVID treatment. We're going to talk about things we've talked before. If you really want to skip, you can, but I wouldn't. Um, I have some new information on this. I have an infectious disease specialist that has commented on my recommendation for three over-the-counter supplements in a very, very positive way. I have a new video that I want you guys to check out from a YouTube channel that is a different way of thinking about the curve uh, and, and how this all plays in with it. And I am gonna, I've already put that out. <clears throat> that segment is out on YouTube, I'm sorry, on Facebook as a standalone video segment. So you can share just that segment with your friends. I really believe it will help a lot of people. Uh, but our main subject today, we have our guests on, Austin and Kay Martin. Uh, we are going to talk with them about keeping a family cow. Uh, it's just, a really great subject to talk about right now because it's upbeat, it's looking forward, and we need to be that way. We're about to have a rough two to three weeks and really a rough 30 days for a lot of the country. And it's going to be easy to get in your head and to get down. Um, but I'll also tell you this next 30 days is kind of the big the big piece of this. And it's, it's, it's going to really quickly return to normal after that. Um, every projection I look at by actual experts says just that. Really, really rough couple, three weeks. Um, more and more states going to full-on stay-at-home orders. Texas just ordered that starting tomorrow. It uh, doesn't really change my life very much, but I know it does for some people. And I know sometimes like a lot of people that are even, you're already living that way, but when they tell you it's that way, it kind of messes with your head. We need to be as optimistic and upbeat as we can. And I think our conversation today with Austin and Kay uh, will really uh, be awesome. They are they have a website called This Is Homesteady and a YouTube channel called Homesteady, a podcast. They're really cool people. I really had a blast talking to them today. I think you'll enjoy the interview. Before that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Safe Castle Royal. All the stuff you need for your prepping needs from the practical to the tactical and everything in between, you will find it at safecastle.com. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. I know Jeff is working day and night to ship orders right now. Everybody seems to want a Berkey. Uh, it sure beats the hell out of standing in line to buy cases of bottled water, doesn't it? Check them out today at directive21.com. Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. Both of those sponsors have been with us since our first year that we had sponsors. So I went about a year before I took them. But we're looking at like 11 years that those, those two companies have stood by. 
besides TSP. So definitely uh, check them out and consider supporting them uh, during this time and getting the stuff that you need that maybe you should have gotten in the past and you hadn't yet. Uh, both of them still are shipping orders. All right. With that, I um, also want to remind you guys that my members program is on sale for $25 bucks a year, and that rate locks in for life. And because there's something wrong with me in my head, I have uh, committed to keeping that special rate for as long as these lockdown orders are in place, uh, at least the national lockdown orders. And that's going to be a while, but you can get it for $25 bucks a year. Discount code is $25. Bucks. Really easy to remember. Two five, the number two five bucks. Sign up at the Survival Podcast at, on the Members tab. And, uh, guys, look, this this thing pays for itself at 50. It's profitable unless you just don't use it at 25. You should be putting money in your pocket. You're kind of crazy not to buy it. All right, with that, let's get into this. And I want to talk to you about, um, again, a little bit about the chloroquine treatments and where that's coming from and one of the things it does and how that relates to Uh, what I am recommending that you use over the counter, and I've got some new information. So with that, uh, let's let's get into that topic. All right, guys. So I, I want to talk about this um, over the counter regime that I've been recommending as something that might help. And I want to say one more time, I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be a doctor. I'm not making a prescription. I'm not making a health claim. But what I've what I've tried to explain over the past couple weeks at least, maybe more like a month now, is one of the reasons that the pharmaceutical drug, and I want to be clear, one of the reasons the pharmaceutical drug, the anti-malarial hydroxychloroquine, seems to work is that it is a zinc ionophore. And what an ionophore means is a cell has a cell wall. That's what it's called, right? And there's a wall around that cell, and it's to keep things out of the cell that don't belong in there. Well, the COVID virus and many other viruses that are RNA replicating viruses, they play a little trick to do that. There's what's known on a cell as an ACE2 receptor. It's designed to let the body put certain things into the cell. Well, they fit in there like a key. So the virus comes along and attaches to your ACE2 receptor, and it pumps virus into your cell. That virus initial piece, then it basically hijacks what's known as your RNA. Your RNA is like a half a DNA, is the way to think about it. And a DNA, what it does is a DNA will decouple, come apart, and RNA will come along and copy one side of the DNA, and then it can go make more DNA. It's, one of the, it's how your body makes new cells and new structures and things like that. Without that process, we literally can't exist as human beings. So what the virus does is it comes in and attaches to that RNA and hijacks it, and it uses it in a complex way to make copies of itself. And it makes a reverse copy and then another copy and a reverse copy and another copy. And eventually you end up with a bunch of viruses inside this cell and the cell explodes. And little viruses go everywhere in your system and they go out and they find new ACE2 receptors and they replicate themselves. Well, again, one of the things, and I want to be clear, it is only one of the things that the hydroxychloroquine serves as, is a zinc ionophore. It also seems to have a direct effect in actually killing COVID. They've done studies where they put them in a Petri dish together and say, what happens if COVID comes into contact with this stuff? It kills it. Um, and unlike some other things that kill it, you can actually take it. Like you, Bleach kills it, but you should not drink bleach. Um, COVID, uh, hydroxychloroquine also has some immunosuppressive actions, but they are generally positive immunosuppressant. 
This is why lupus patients take hydroxychloroquine, because it prevents an excessive immune response, which is one of the problems COVID's causing when it becomes a pneumonia, right? The, the, and we go into what's called a cytokine storm, and the immune system goes berserk, and it overattacks, because the immune system at this point has to start killing the cells that are infected. So it starts killing other cells that maybe aren't infected, and all of a sudden it's doing lung damage, and you end up on a ventilator. So the hydroxychloroquine, it looks like anyway, that it pulls back the immune response, has a direct effect, but it also acts as a zinc ionophore, puts zinc in the cell. Now the reason that's important, and this is, this is incredibly important to understand this, is this is known science. This is not some you know, guy on medium that, that tells you his product is going to cure cancer or something. It is known science that if you get zinc into the cell, that it shuts down or slows down or impairs viral replication. The ability of the virus to reproduce is impaired by zinc. This is why they say zinc does shorten the, the common cold, which is also a coronavirus. The problem is that cell wall that the COVID virus and other viruses so easily get through by attaching to the ACE2 receptor keeps zinc out. Your body has to have a compelling reason to put zinc in the cell, and it doesn't know to do it in this situation. Well, if you take something like hydroxychloroquine that is known as an ionophore for zinc, it basically lets the zinc get in the cells, and your cells become rich with zinc, comparatively speaking, assuming there's enough zinc in the body for that to happen. All right? So that's one of the things. The other thing is they're, they're doing the hydroxychloroquine along with an antibiotic known as azithromycin. That is not for COVID directly, but it's for secondary infections. This combination seems to work very well. We all know that. We just don't know how well, for who, what people, and at the right time. And I do believe that it is very important that doctors start to come to realize that the earlier in the game, especially for people at higher risk or showing significant symptoms, the better. The whole point is keep people off the ventilator. Keep people out of the ICU. If it works once they're there, it probably works before they're there. Up till now, some legitimate case could be made that there just wasn't enough of it. I think your, your, your excuse is about to be gone, and I need doctors to step up. And if the patient, this is how I feel about it. If you would otherwise prescribe this medication to your patient, if he doesn't have risk factors that would prevent the prescription of it, if he had rheumatoid arthritis, I think it's probably worth it. I'm not a doctor. You have to make that decision as a doctor yourself with your patient. But it seems like that's the case. And if I was the patient, that would be my question for my doctor. If I had rheumatoid arthritis and I wanted this medication, would you give it to me? Yes? Here. And, and those of you that keep wanting to make the case that this stuff is like some kind of toxic thing that's going to kill you, the dose being recommended, especially before you're in an ICU with the shit in an IV, because it's the only way to get it into you because you can't swallow because there's a tube down your throat, Okay, the recommended dose is 200 milligrams twice a day. That's what most doctors are using, and it seems to be effective. The dose a lupus patient takes for their entire flipping life is generally 200 to 400 milligrams a day. The dose that an RA patient, rheumatoid arthritis patient, takes is about the same. You have these people taking that medication their entire life, often with many other health conditions, tolerating it just fine, but... We're going to kill people if we give it to them for 12 days. It's just nonsense. It doesn't follow a track logically in any way at all. It just doesn't. And you need to stop saying it because you're full of crap, and you're probably going to hurt people who are going to believe you and be afraid to take something that is the most valid treatment that we currently have. And stop waiting for the FDA to put their... They put a stamp of, you can use it, doctors. They already said you can. 
They said they, the FDA approved it for off-label use for COVID specifically. So basically, like, we're approving it for COVID, but we're not saying it fixes COVID. Okay? Stop waiting for the golden seal from the same people that told you that comfrey is a toxin if it's taken internally, despite being used for 10,000 years, based on two flimsy studies where they shoved 60,000 leaves of comfrey equivalent into a, mat, uh, into a rat and said it blew up their liver. Nobody would ever consume 60,000 freaking leaves of comfrey in 90 days. But those flimsy studies were enough to ban the use of that substance. Same organization that you're waiting on to tell you something that other doctors are saying, I'm using it and it works, is the one that did that. Please use your medical training and think instead of obey. Please. Now, the thing that I've been recommending is a combination of over-the-counter supplements. And I want to update that, and I want to be very clear on not overdosing. And I need you, if you're going to do this, because I'm saying to, to do your own research for it, make sure you're making your own decision, and I need you to make sure that you're looking up dosage information, not just following what the bottle says. Because you can't always trust the bottle to actually give you the information you need about dosage. But there are three over-the-counter supplements that I believe should be effective here. They are green tea extract, Q-certain, or certain, I'm not sure how you say it, uh, and zinc. And I want to read something to you about the research that I've done on this and the information I've been putting out on this from a listener whose father is an infectious disease specialist. He says, Hey, Jack, I confirmed with an infectious disease and internal medicine specialist that your recommendation of taking green tea extract, quercetin, and zinc should work on COVID-19. I sent my dad a link to the episode you did on this, 2622, to get his professional opinion on supplement regimen that you recommended for COVID-19. My dad is an infectious disease and internal medicine specialist who has been in the field for over three decades. To put it simply, he did not disagree with anything that you said in that episode. He was highly impressed by the level of research you put into what he said, uh, what you said, and ordered all three supplements for everybody at his house. If that ain't confirmation that what you recommend is legitimate, I don't know what is. Thanks for everything you're doing right now. Before I put out that initial recommendation, I spoke to two doctors and a scientist that works for a drug company that's making chloroquine. All three of them said similar things. I am not pulling this information out of my butt, okay? This is based on the fact that green tea extract and quercetin are ionophores for zinc, as chloroquine is. It does not mean, please understand me, it does not mean they do everything chloroquine does. It means they provide that one function of what looks like three functions that chloroquine does. You got that? That's really important that we're not misunderstanding anything Jack's saying. I've, I've learned I have to be incredibly precise here. The other thing is, it doesn't make sense to go taking mega doses of any of this stuff. You can take too much zinc, it'll make you shit your brains out and can damage your kidneys and things like that. Okay? So don't overtake the zinc. The only reason that we're taking the green tea extract is for the purpose of being an ionophore, which means if you're taking any more than is necessary to get the zinc into the cells, or if you're taking it when you're not taking zinc, it, unless there's a lot of zinc in your diet, it probably won't do any good. So keep the green tea extract down because high loads of it have shown to have the, the capability of causing hepatic damage. That's liver damage. You don't want to damage your liver in the best of times, but certainly not right now. So 
Um, I've seen recommendations all over the map on green tea. Nobody agrees on it. The lowest one I've seen for a maximum dose is 338 milligrams. I think you'd get more than that drinking a few cups of green tea. So the other thing you can do here is you can substitute that morning coffee when you're taking your zinc and your chrysotin with just a cup of green tea, and that will probably help as well. I don't know. You'll need to look up the numbers. But I looked at the bottle of green tea extract I ordered and was shocked to see that two of them, which is the recommended dosage on the bottle, is 1,000 milligrams. The highest safe recommendation for daily use that I can find is 800 milligrams. So I'm going to go to taking one of those a day, 500 milligrams, when I take the zinc supplement. That's what I'm going to do. You have to make your own decisions. But understand, we, people take green tea extract for a lot of reasons. The only reason I'm suggesting you consider it for yourself based on your understanding of all the knowledge here is because it works as an ionophore for zinc. Additionally, quercetin is a good ionophore for zinc, and quercetin is a good immune-boosting supplement. Uh, I believe it's actually sold under the trade name Reversitol as well. As well. Quercetin, Qcertin, again, I'm not sure how you're supposed to say it. My, my physician has me on this all the time anyway. I was happy to find out I was already taking it. I also found out that the body is not great at absorbing it. And it is best taken prior to need. So it's something you want to start taking right away if, if you feel that this is beneficial to you. And again, you have to make your own decision. I'm not a doctor. I'm not making any claims about health. I'm just pointing to science and what science says. And what science says is quercetin, among other things that it does for immune-boosting capabilities, is act as a zinc ionophore. That's not a medical claim. That's a scientific fact. They have tested it. They have put zinc into a body and then measured zinc in the cells and then they have added Qcertin and said, hey, there's more zinc in there now. And the research that was most definitive, I found, was done on rodents. And you're not a rodent, but it's pretty clear. And this is the same research that the infectious disease specialist looked at and said, this tracks logically. When they did that experiment, they did not give Qcertin or green tea extract. They gave both. Since I don't know which one works better... And since both are safe, if you keep the dosage where it needs to be, for myself, I have made a decision to take both of them along with supplemental zinc. Zinc dosage. I read this online. You need to verify it for yourself. But the highest recommendation by the National Institute of Health for supplemental zinc is 40 milligrams a day. And for females, it's actually a little lower. And for children, it's much lower. So you need to look it up for yourself. But what I'm saying is, based on every doctor who's, who's taken this seriously and reviewed my suggestions, everyone has come back and said, this can't hurt and should help. Or it will help. Like, it's either should or would, including our own Doc Bones. Let me tell you how adverse to adver uh, alternative treatments Dr. Bones is. We got in a shouting match because I was telling him about a product for dogs that has four enzymes in it in addition to a steroid. And that I had seen that it worked really well on wounds and preventing infection. And I showed him studies that said those things worked. And he got so angry that you should be using antibiotics for any sort of topical infection that we got in a shouting argument with each other. And yet when I showed him this data, he said, oh, that, that makes sense. So you're talking skeptic to the extreme on anything alternative going, that makes sense. So where does this fit in with the video on hydrotherapy that I want you all to watch? Uh, 
this video broke down the curve of infected versus the total infection curve. And he, what he showed is for five days, most people don't know they have it. At about five days, symptoms start to emerge. People go to the doctor in that five-day period. They get tested, but if they're not having trouble breathing, they send them home. They don't give them any treatment in the hospital. It's at about 10 days that about 20% of them end up in the hospital because once you have breathing problems, then they admit you. And they're not most of the time, they're not doing any treatment at all in that five-day window. And what he said is what's been determined is your innate immunity depends on where you come out at the end of that five-day window. At the end of that five-day window, if your innate immunity is strong, you don't go to the hospital and you're pretty much close to recovery. If your innate immunity is not strong, you end up in the 20% that end up in the hospital. And the place we can make the biggest difference right now is in that five-day window of supporting immunity. Now, this is another MD. I'm not an MD, but this man is. And he talks about how this was done with hydrotherapy, basically very hot baths and then cold and then hot again, stimulating the immune response. And what they've now discovered, according to this doctor, is that COVID actually, if left alone for the, this group of people that end up in the hospital window, down-regulates your immune system. So to me, since we can up-regulate immunity with zinc in the cells, we're hitting that window if you do happen to become infected. I'm not saying it prevents, treats, or cures disease. I'm saying we're boosting immunity through zinc in the cells, slowing down viral replication in the window that this doctor's talking about, probably. That's what I'm saying. So you understand, no health claims here. I'm not going to Club Fed because somebody says I said this shit cured disease. I, and I'm being, I'm not being like, hey, wink, wink. I'm, I really don't know. All I'm saying is logically this tracks. I really want y'all to watch this video. I really want you to watch this video. He shows how you can look at the data from Spanish flu and the people that were treated with this hydrotherapy had a much higher survival rate because back then if you got full-blown pneumonia, you were probably going to die. If not, you might die. You probably were going to die. But that's that window we have to operate in. And I, I really recommend that you consider building up the immune system. And the best way I know to do that is with nutritional supplementation. And then these three things, based on every doctor, again, I've had doctors go, Bleh. you know, I, I, I can't work with that. I haven't had a doctor that I've said, okay, here's this study, here's this study, here's this study. Here's what's going on. Here's what these results are. What do you think about this? The, the, the most melancholy result I got was, might help, don't know. Can't hurt. Man, when something's inexpensive, phew. now, you'll find that getting zinc and getting for certain on Amazon and drugstores and stuff like that is difficult right now. My, uh, my chiropractor, who also works with labs and nutritional supplementation, things like that, uh, Dr. Stephen Lewis at Green Wisdom Health, right now has a pretty good stock of Quercertin and zinc. Green tea extract's not hard to get. And again, if you can't get it, or you want to do it a different way, have a cup of green tea when you take your Quercertin and your zinc. Try that, whatever. But he has some. His website is Green Wisdom Health. I don't know how long he's going to have it, but he said he got a pretty good stock in. And again, one more time, do not take mega doses of this shit. Don't be like the dumbass out in Arizona or Nevada or whatever who took a, 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 a chemical for freaking fish tanks, right? 
Use the safe dose to boost your immunity because what this doctor's saying is if we can take in that, that curve, that five-day curve where 80% cycle out and 20% end up in the hospital, if we can take that to where only 15% up in the hospital, it doesn't seem that big, it's a, 20%, a 25% reduction in hospitalization. And every person we keep off a ventilator or out of an ICU, I believe we're saving two lives. Because it's a ventilator and an ICU bed for someone we can't keep out. So it's more than just the person that didn't go there in the first place. It's the person that no matter what we do, they're going to end up there and there's more room for them. Please share this segment with your friends. Those of you listening to it on the podcast, there is a Facebook live stream video that I've done on this. You can share just that. It won't hurt my feelings none. If you want to hear the whole podcast today, again, we're talking about cows in backyards and not losing your life while having a milk cow. Kind of a better subject. We don't do all COVID all the time, but I'm telling you guys, please check out the video. It's episode uh, number, uh, where is it now? Hold on. It is on MedCram is the, is the, uh, is the YouTube channel, and it's episode 47 of his, um, his lectures on COVID. I'll put a link in the show notes, and I'll get one into the video here on Facebook for y'all as well. Um, guys, thank you for following me through this, and thank you for sharing this. I really do believe that this information can help save lives. Um, but I, again, I'm back to you have to make your own decision. If you have any questions, ask them, and I will include all of the links to all of the studies and data that I've based this on uh, in the notes here for you as well. Take care. All right, folks, and with that, hey, Austin and Kay, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank hey, Jack, you. thanks for having us on. Good to be here. Hey, man, between the time y'all filled out this form and now... Apocalypse 2020, you know, right? We were going to talk about cows, and you know, I had my intro segment today. We talked a lot about the COVID pandemic, but leading off, I, I think that probably homesteaders in the middle of this feel better off than most people. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, we were talking about this, Jack. We were thinking about talking about how to have a mini jersey or how to have a milk cow end a life. Yeah. And when we said that, it was like how to enjoy your life, but now it's actually... How to feed your family, how to mm -hmm. keep living. <laughs> We're still going to come at it from that, that first angle, though, today, because I've refused to be the COVID podcast, and I've I refused to stop talking about the future as though the future doesn't exist. We're going to get through this. It's, uh, okay. it's going to feel really, really long because we're the microwave generation. I, I was thinking today, I told my wife, I said, like, the microwave generation is about to get a lesson in making sourdough bread. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. You know, my mom you don't... was just saying today, like, oh, I need bread. And my sister tells her, Mom, you can make some bread. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, just let's start off with what, what got you guys into homesteading in the first place? Back about almost 10 years ago now, we were just about to have our baby boy. And we had no idea what that was going to be like. He was our first. We actually have five children now. Uh, which is up from the last time I talked to you, Jack. I was four back then, but okay. now we got five. And we we knew we wanted to feed our son the best food we possibly could, but we were living in a little apartment. We had no land of our own. We had a small little area we could put in a garden. Uh, we couldn't really afford to buy organic food. We just knew what we wanted and we were determined to make it happen. So we looked at each other. We said, all right, what can we do? 
Can we find a way where we can provide more of our food? She started gardening. I started hunting on public land. And then it went from there. We found a place to start up our first farm. And here we are on our what is now our second farm. And uh, we're now at the point where we're, we have five kids and we're doing a whole lot of food from the homestead now. That's pretty awesome, guys. Um, so you start, you, you, know, you, you start out kind of getting your feet wet. You, you move into some more real homesteading, start picking out a place to live and things like that. And then you decide you're going to get into uh, to dairy. What led you down the pathway <laughs> to dairy in the first place? Because it's, it's, it's generally not the first thing a person does. Usually people start with chickens or, or you know, rabbits or something. Cows are a, a bigger life form. Uh, what, what headed you in that direction? We started out with chickens ourselves, okay. and I'm from I'm from kind of farm country in western PA. So my family's been on a farm. My great grandfather had cows here. My when I lived here, we had horses, some donkeys, bigger stuff. But I met Austin. We lived in Connecticut. He had never had anything. So when we started at our first homestead, we started off with chickens, and then we did some meat birds. Then Austin got some pigs, and then I said. The dairy thing was totally me because Austin always said, I don't want to do dairy. Dairy's a time <laughs> commitment. Yeah. I don't want to be out there twice a day milking anything. But I definitely wanted, I wanted it. I wanted to go out and milk that animal. I had this idyllic kind of picture in my head about resting my head against my goat as I milked out, <laughs> brought it into the house and had cheese just overflowing in my refrigerator. So we started out with dairy goats first. And we failed with those a couple times, <laughs> two or three times. <laughs> we failed with goats. And because I grew up in farm country, cows everywhere, the fairs, county fairs around here, I would, when I was younger, walk through those dairy barns, and I would see those 4-H kids sitting there sleeping on their dairy cows. Always gave me this image of a cow. So by the time I was frustrated with goats, I had had enough of goats, I, I told Austin, I said, you know what? I want a cow. <laughs> and he said, nope. <laughs> I was pretty clear, Jack. This is your thing. Yeah. I can support it. I can, you know, I'll help out in the barn, but you will never find me milking twice a day. Jack, I'm a hunter. Uh, I'm a fisherman, a lot like you. I like to get out in the woods. I like every day to be a little bit different. And milking a cow, milking a goat, it just wasn't going to be my thing. But I said, you know what? I can support you if you want to go that route. We can do this. That's your thing. <laughs> yeah, he likes uh, the animals with a definite end in sight. Yeah, so, I'm a meat guy. Yeah, meat birds, <laughs> pigs, anything that you're butchering in the fall is more his style. No, spoiler alert, things may have changed. We'll get to that later. Okay. But at the time, it was very clear, Jack, uh, Jack, this was her thing. She could be the milker. And I'll just I support whatever ways I could. Okay, and then you got to pick a cow, right? Right. And, and you guys ended up just selecting the breed of mini Jersey. What what made you make that decision? Because it's like I found that people selecting I don't care if it's a chicken, right? Selecting a breed is way more complicated for people a lot of times than selecting their next car. Oh I mean, yeah. A chicken for them, and the cow for them, and the goat for them, <laughs> and this one does this, and this one stands on its head, or whatever. And it, it, you know, it's it's not just hey, we'll go get a cow, and you just pick one. So what after whatever rigmarole you went through, what what made you land on Mini Jersey? Especially where we were in Connecticut, there were a lot of breeds, a lot of nice heritage breeds we could pick from. 
I went with the mini jersey. Even I started looking at jerseys more seriously and ended up with the mini jersey because they had what I was looking for. They have a lot of cream, nice creamy milk. They're a smaller breed. And um, they have a reputation for being a bit more manageable for a first-time cow owner. We also had a really small piece of property at the time, Jack. Now, it doesn't sound small to a lot of your audience. Ten acres sounds like a lot. But when we found our first farm in Connecticut, uh, it was not a farm at the time. It was kind of that uh, urban-rural edge you talk a lot about. It was right there on the urban-rural edge. We had a beautiful – it was a ridge – where the back eight acres were perfect for doing some hunting and some foraging. And then we had about two acres where the house, and then we had opened up a little area and put in a little barn and a little bit of pasture. So it really wasn't a big area. So we knew we couldn't go and put some big giant cow on it that was going to need a whole lot of pasture and be real heavy on it because we were going to need to supplement its diet anyway. So kind of all that stuff combined as Kay was searching for the right breed, it kind of led her to looking into jerseys and really specifically smaller and mini jerseys. So what was the first year with your uh, your cow, Ladybug, like? I mean, you already said you had tried goats and that was a failure. Um, I loathe goats. I, I mean, <laughs> I love a goat. If it's over top of mesquite coals, <laughs> roasting, and I'm not saying I oppose a cow that way either, but I'm not really a fan of goats as a life form. No. Uh, so what was a cow like? Goats, uh, goats and cows are totally the opposite, the ones that we've had. Okay. Cow, uh, goats are, they're goats. They're, they're <laughs> frantic. They're everywhere. They're chaos. We, goats are Pure chaos. chaos. Cows are steady. They're a bit more of thinkers, I'd say, than goats are. They think before they act. Our cows do. They're suspicious. Yes. So they look at you and they look at the surroundings and and they just react a a bit slower than the goat would. The goat would have already jumped over the fence. The (laughs) the cow's looking at it, thinking about it. Uh, So it was a very different experience. They're a bit more grounding than a goat is. Yeah, so much more. I remember when the trailer pulled up with Ladybug in it, and the the guy brought her off, and he handed me the rope, and he goes, well, here's your cow. Why don't you walk her to the barn? And I've been around large animals. I've I've raised horses. The cow was different, though, because cows are – she was a – Docky, strong, the, the head, the strength that's, that was there was so unfamiliar to me, even coming from horses. So I, I remember feeling that apprehension. And she's not a large cow. <laughs> yeah. I, I just remember thinking, I'm so glad she's not any bigger because I would have been totally intimidated by her if she was. I often describe the day she arrived, Jack, for those fans in the audience of Jurassic Park, that introduction scene where the velociraptor is being unloaded yeah. from the crate. That's how I felt with that cow being unloaded onto our homestead. Just like, this animal is going to kill me. What are we doing? This is going to ruin our little homestead. This is going to be a disaster. I was I was a lot more worried about this than Kay was because I hadn't really done any of the research. I hadn't looked into it. Again, it was her thing, and I was just going to support it. So I was afraid. But that was really... Uh, overreaction because yeah. right away it, it got she was so easy yeah you put her behind a fence and she would just stay there <laughs> <Different> <laughs> <than goats. laughs> and we took those first few months she hadn't 
she hadn't calved that uh, that calf yet. So she was dried off. We weren't milking yet. Took those first couple months and just got to know her. Spent every day with her. And I, then I so built when, a stanchion yeah, for her. Yeah, we built got her ready, got her used to that. So first few months, nice and quiet, and then she calved. And then we started the, the journey of milking. Our, our calving experience is uh, just, it was kind of one of those wonderful memories that you'll never, you know, you'll never forget. We homeschool our kids, Jack, at the time. What did we have? Three or four at the time? Yeah. And four of them. And we were all outside just sitting. You can watch, we have a YouTube channel. You can watch this video. All four kids just sitting there with their mom and dad watching this, you know, mini Jersey cow laying there. Calving went real smooth. You know, everything you expected to see just right on time. Out comes this little, beautiful calf. And, man, score, it was a heifer. And it was just one of those magical experiences. You know, I'll never forget sitting on the lawn with my kids watching that first calving on our homestead. And from there, it continued to be pretty smooth sailing. Yeah. It wasn't her first calf. It was her second, which meant she was familiar with being milked. She, was she knew familiar what to do. Right. She knew the milking routine, which made it really enjoyable for me because essentially she taught me what to do. We had a few rocky days with her hormones settling and me just figuring out how she worked. She's also blind in one eye. So we, we've learned to adapt and work with her in that way too. She's taught us a lot. And the first year wasn't, I think, a big as a learning curve as Austin had anticipated it would be. No, it went way smoother than I was. After our goat experiences, we had been disappointed so many times by so many different milk goat endeavors. This was incredibly fulfilling, incredibly smooth. And the product, Jack, yeah. we've had a lot of bad tasting goat milk. And we've had some good tasting goat mm -hmm. milk. you got to be fair. But, uh, oh, man, once she started bringing in those those jars, the mason jars full of Jersey milk, oh, man, that was like out of this world. Yeah, that was – it's just miraculous in its way. See the cream separate, skim that cream, make butter, just – Use every part of it. Feed it to every animal on the farm. They love it. Yeah, and I was going to kind of get into that. Let's talk about some of the uses for it because, you know, you say mini, Jersey, it's still a big animal. Yeah. Right? It's, you know, yeah, it's smaller. It doesn't mean – smaller right. doesn't mean small, right? So, like, <laughs> no. the amount of milk you get from a cow, even a mini cow, is significant. So let's talk about some of the uses that you guys have for this milk Uh, including beyond the human uses. We, with the five kids, we'll go through, we really could amp up our consumption of milk till every day we're going through about a gallon of milk a day, wouldn't okay. you say? Yeah, we, um, our kids will just tear up the milk if we let them. So, and because she is a smaller cow, she does produce less than, you know, a full-size Jersey, commercial-style Jersey. Um, so we usually will go through it all. We've made butter from it in the past. Yogurt. Yogurt. Uh, any baking. baking, use it in baking. I'll clabber it, so I'll let it sit out on the counter and get more solid, and we'll feed that to the chickens. Yep, we've done that. Now, we have raised pigs in the past. We've never had enough excess milk to do the, the milk-fed pigs. If You know, we've grown our, our herd of cows out there 
it's a herd, right? I'm going to yes. use the right terms here. We've grown to a bigger herd now, but we still don't have enough where we could like feed pigs from it. But maybe someday that would be an yeah, option. Yeah, because we keep growing our children too. That's yeah, our in, our indoor herd keeps growing to match the outdoor herd. <laughs> but its uses, I mean, it really just endless. And that's one of the nice things about the if you know a homesteader's thinking, should I do the goat versus the cow? You you have more uses just the fact that you can make butter with it without some fancy machine Mm -hmm. Uh, nothing like spring spring milk butter it's the yellow of spring milk butter is you know this bright beautiful yellow color kind of like you know you would compare it to the the yolks on your grass you know grass-fed chickens or something like that it's just it's wonderful product and because it's raw the dogs tolerate it and the cats as well so we can use that to supplement their food too yeah Gotcha. And what um, what do you think about these these guys, these mini jerseys, as like a dual purpose homestead animal? I think that's one of the best things about the mini jerseys, Jack. Is um, you I, you say it a lot. I know I'm a big listener listener to your show. Dual dual purpose usually do both things poorly, right? Yeah. You very rarely get. Good. What I actually say to be fair is they usually do neither one exceptional. There you go. That's yeah. that's a nicer way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> Unless we're talking about goats. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the nice thing about the the Jersey cow is it really does. Now it's not an Angus. You're not sure. going to get fast growing meat off of this thing. But you're if you get a bull calf, which we've never at now we've had three calves on our homestead. We every time it's all heifers. Uh, but if we were to get, we'd be pleasantly surprised by a bull calf this next go around because then we would have some really great tasting beef that is able to be totally grass fed. You can just grow these things fat off of grass. If you see our cows in our videos, they are not skinny cows and that is all just off of grass. Uh, great quality beef product, but meanwhile, the females are making this amazing milk. And then on top of that, you're getting your heifers, which there's a really good market for heifers right now. So forget dual purpose. We got you know, three purpose, four purpose. It's just so many different good reasons to have this animal on this homestead, on a homestead. Gotcha. Um, now, you guys are pretty big on something called calf sharing. What exactly is calf sharing? That's the part where it lets you have a life. Okay. If you have a belt cow, we keep the calves on the cows full time for the first month or so because the cow's giving so much milk. Even with the calf on, I'll milk twice a day so she doesn't get mastitis or anything. But after the first month, the calf's grown enough where the calf can keep up with the dam's production. So I don't have to milk at all if I don't want to. Uh, it can be I can milk once a week. I can milk once a day. If we need to go visit family somewhere, I don't need to call up a neighbor or try to find a house sitter who's willing to milk a cow. Because in this day and age, there just aren't that many people out there who are familiar with milking a cow. So the calf kind of fills in those holes where I can't. If you think about it, Jack, um, yeah. So imagine you want to, let's say you want to take a week and go to Sanibel Island and do some fishing, right? Sure. You got dairy cows. You can't do that. You, you got to be there to milk unless you got someone you trust. Uh, we have kids. I love to take them on fishing trips. Every year we go up north. We go to Rhode Island and uh, go for a week of fishing. Uh, we can do that. I know a lot of homesteaders think, oh, your homestead is 
you know, the place you want to be. Why would you ever want to leave? But oh, I want to leave. You, you want to go fishing. <laughs> right? Yeah. You want to go catch some yeah. sharks. You want to go catch that. We want to go fishing. I like going to the, the coast every year. I like I used to be a surfer dude. So like every year I want to go to the coast. I want to catch some striped bass with my kids. Uh, and I want our kids to be able to enjoy a little bit of, you know, seeing different places other than just Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big thing for us. We never wanted to be so tied to our homestead that we couldn't go away for just a week, even if it's to visit family. We do live far from my parents, so that's important. Uh, we used to live far from her parents, so that was important too. Uh, so with these animals, you can have the wonderful benefits of raw milk. You can have this product, but then you can still have kids and and have what, you know, they look at their friends who are, you know, going on vacations and they're like, oh, daddy, why can't we ever go take a vacation? Well, now we can. We can leave the calves on for a week, but it even extends beyond just, you know, taking vacations. You know, Jack, with kids, sometimes life happens. Uh, we just have gone through this last couple months, a really uh, kind of big life change. Our fifth child has some allergy issues with food. And we were trying to figure out, you know, what is going on with him and, and what's happening. And so one of the things we found out really early is, well, he shouldn't have cow milk. So we went and actually switched things up at our homestead. And uh, this happened since we put in the application to be on the show. Uh, we actually are now milking camels. So that's a story for another episode. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> we had to take a break for a long time while adjusting and transitioning to a different animal. We had to take a break from milking our cows, and we were able to do that. We were able to pause for months, a couple months. We just left the calves on. Well, now here comes this coronavirus, and, and you know there's no milk on the shelves, and there's you know less food on the shelves. I know there's still food on the shelves, Jack. Yeah. yeah. But you know at, at the local grocery grocery here, there was some trouble finding stuff. So we thought, you know what? With this happening, why don't we start milking the cows again? just so that our friends and family nearby or, or our kids who can have the cow milk will have it. Mm -hmm. So we were able to unpause. We put the cows on pause for a couple months while we adjusted our homestead. Well, this week, if you watch our YouTube channel, you'll see we're back to milking cows again. And it's like you just turn the switch back on and we're getting, you know, gallons of cow milk. Now, just there are sacrifices that you do make when you calf share. Okay. There's, a, there's a reason why dairies don't because – does the cow becomes used to just let, letting down for the calf? She will hold back milk for the calf. The calf usually ends up getting nice and fat on all the cream oh, yeah. that that oh, cow is holding back. <laughs> but we still use the calves to have the cow let down. Then we'll pull it. We'll let the calf drink for about a minute. Then we'll pull her off, and then we'll milk out, put the calf back on, so we get a little bit of cream, and then we'll let them out for the rest of the day. It makes for a nice. The cow and calf are happy. The calf is fat as a tick. <laughs> and we get milk on a flexible schedule. And you're not ripping the calf away from the cow. Right. Because that makes both of them unhappy. I mean, right. it really does. And that's that's the way dairies tend to work. Yeah. Um, it's not the way dairies, you know, you say dairies don't do this. It's not the way small dairies worked ever in human history until it became a giant commercial enterprise. What you're doing is what every, you know, every person that kept cattle and had it like a home dairy did was right. 
allow the calf to feed because that grew the, a lot of the calf. You didn't have to right. worry about feeding it. And like you said, you don't have to milk every day if you don't want to. And um, you still get plenty of milk, right? I right, mean, because there was value. there's value to the calves. But in the commercial dairies, the cow prices are down so low, milk prices are so low, where the calves, for people, they practically have no value at all. So for them, they pull the calf. And just send it to the auction. Sure, sure. Yeah, and one of the things you'll find in this market, uh, in the mini Jersey market, is the calves are very valuable. There are a lot of homesteaders right now who are looking to have this lifestyle, and they're a special, they're kind of a special niche product. And some people, you know, <laughs> shocker, Jack, we get a YouTube channel. Sometimes we get negative comments. You ever had one of those? Oh, few. <laughs> So a lot of times people will just say, like, you're crazy to pick a cow that's a small production animal. What's wrong with you? Well, it matches our lifestyle. It's a good fit for the life that we want to have. And these calves are a real – these are niche product with a high demand and a low supply, especially right now. There's a huge demand for these animals. So the homesteader can actually not worry about making money selling milk. You can make a nice amount of money. We just sold a calf. Not too long ago, which is going to cover so much of the cost associated with getting this started on our homestead. And I mean, we started years ago now, but but it's covering so many of those expenses. So that calf really is a valuable little it's a valuable little thing. And, mm -hmm. and having it on its mom creates a really good, healthy. Um, yeah, good start for the yeah. calf. And what's the what's the meat yield on one of these you know mini <laughs> mini cows if you uh, if you you know grow out a calf to to for beef? You know, Jack, that is a great question that I am not able to answer we've because never had one. we've never had a uh, a bull calf. Yeah, we've never had a bull calf. We hoped that this last one we'd at least get one, um, and yeah, we've just never been able to get a. We've never been able to see. And you know, Jack, you're a hunter. You know what you get hanging weight isn't what goes yeah. in the freezer. So what what they would actually be on the hoof versus what you'd put in, that's a good question. I don't know if you remember, Austin. When we, we interviewed someone with Dexter cattle, and they're a similar size. Yeah. I would guess right. around what a Dexter cattle would be. Yeah, they told me, oh, man. Yeah, I'd just be pulling this out of nowhere, Jack. Somewhere around the number 300 pounds is, is a number in my head from that Dexter, but that could totally be be wrong and like i said we've unfortunately we've never been able to it's great quality we've heard nothing but good things about jersey especially milk fed yeah milk fed jersey but we maybe this next calving we have we'll be able to update you on that yeah yeah that sounds about right i would say three somewhere in the 300 pound range seems yeah. about right you know and are you counting bonus yield I mean, right probably because most of my cuts i like bone in cuts yeah and then you're more like 400 or whatever because uh, there's a lot of bone weight in a cow. You were talking about yeah. their power, and I kind of look at like compared to a horse. A horse is like a sports car with with a uh, a really well tuned, properly geared for speed 350 in it, and a cow is like a beat up, beat up, busted old pickup truck. <laughs> and you think it maybe has a V6 in because it's just tooling along, but it's got a 454 in it. It's low geared. Right, and it just it just will go anywhere yeah, and pull anything. Yeah, once they start going, and you can't oh, yeah. stop them. The, Even these calves, these calves are I call them little tanks because they're just you put a halter on those things and they'll take you for a ride. Oh, yeah. yesterday we were trying to I was trying to get one separated just yesterday the day before, and she was she, I trying to lasso that thing, and she took me for a couple rides. 
<laughs> I can believe it. How do the kids factor in all this with the, you know, um, you got kids, you're doing calf sharing, and you get milk, and you still can enjoy that family life. How, how does that kind of factor in with the full family picture? I like the mini jersey, especially for this reason, because they're still they're still livestock. They're still a large animal. I don't let my kids go in there unattended ever. Yeah. But the smaller calves, I can have the kids work with them. They've got a bit more chance of being able to learn to handle them. The, their strengths a bit more evenly matched than a larger size calf would be. And one of the great things about having cattle as your milk animal, Jack, uh, you can have AI done with a mini jersey. We All our girls have been AI. Uh, yeah, cows. Uh, what's the word? Artificially inseminated. There it is. Uh, so the nice thing about that is it means we don't need to keep a bull. Because we have a family with lots of young – our oldest is a 10 – he's about to turn 10, 10-year-old boy. Our youngest is just about to turn a year old. So we have lots of young children and bulls, even a mini Jersey bull who is smaller. They're enormous. It's still an incredible <laughs> – muscle. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's still a dangerous animal if a bull is – and a bull can be dangerous. So – if you decide, you know what, I'd love to have a milk cow on my homestead. I'd love to go get this this farm fresh milk every morning, feed my family. But I'm worried about my children being around a bull because they are typically going to be where the danger is, less danger with cows. You don't need to have a bull. We've never had a bull. The nice thing about cattle is usually no matter where you live, you can find somebody who goes around to farms, who does AI for big farms, And maybe he's going to charge you extra because you only have one or two cows and normally he's doing a hundred head. Us, it, our guy, I think it's 25 bucks. He shows up. He artificially inseminates both cows for like 25 bucks. And he stores our semen for us. And he stores our <laughs> semen for us. Mm -hmm. And it's done. And again, I get comments on YouTube. Oh, that's crazy. You don't keep your own bull. No, it's not. No, I can't not. feed a bull for $25 a year. There's no way. So it works great for people who don't want to have the danger or the expense of a bull because there is expense feeding that bull and caring for that bull and having a separate fenced-in paddock for that bull that if you're not going to be large scale, you don't have to worry about. You can just get your AI guy up there a couple times a year, take care of your different animals, and you're good. Absolutely. So – Where should someone start if they want to if they want to do this? If they're like, I, I want to kind of join the cow owners club. What is kind of the first <laughs> steps and, and and what do you do? I mean, I've said like even a chicken. Like the biggest mistake people make with chickens is oh, I go go get some chickens. They bring them home like what the hell do I do with the right. chickens? Like, <laughs> oh, they need a coop. And well, well, they're babies right now. They need a brooder box. What's a brooder box? Uh, right. right. So what do you what do you kind of get in place if you want to become a cow owner? That especially right now, I feel like people are kind of reacting out of desperation. It's this knee-jerk reaction people are doing right now where all over the place, I'm seeing many cow breeders saying, hey, somebody's looking for a calf, somebody's looking for a cow, mm -hmm. who've never done any research. Into no idea what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, they have no idea what they're doing. And it's just, even if they're many, you're not going to put them in your, your basement and keep them there. So they are a serious investment. First, learn about cows. There are tons of forums out there family cow forums there are books out there and there are people near you who have cows who probably have had cows their entire life go see them go talk to them find out 
even if they're doing it in a style that's totally different than what you plan on doing it, at least go stand next to a cow and figure out if you really want to do this. One of the ways that Kay got me on board early on with having a cow in the first place was she took me on a field trip. We always say, you know, if you're thinking about getting into some kind of livestock, go on a field trip. Find, now, don't go uninvited. Find mm. someone, give them a call, make a plan. Hey, can we come see your animals? What's a good day? Yeah, buy some milk uh, from them. But yeah, be a customer of theirs. Give them, not only take up their time, but give them some money for it, right? If they're selling milk, buy a bunch of milk. We went on a field trip uh, to somebody's who had mini jerseys. And we spent some time. And I was, before this, I was not really excited about this idea. Before this, I was worried, like, oh, this is a big animal. Should we do this? After spending a day around mini jerseys and just feeling that, wow, these animals, their energy is a lot. This isn't a giant goat. (laughs) (laughs) This is a total different animal with a different energy. I got to see it be milked. I got to see it moved around the barnyard. And I just, at that point, I realized we we could do this. This actually is something we could do. Now, it still was probably, what, six months before we ever wound up purchasing and getting our cow. Right. That's just the beginning. Right. Then it's making sure you have the right infrastructure. I know, Jack, you say all the time, make sure the infrastructure is there first mm-hmm. because you don't want the cow showing up before the barn's ready, before the fencing's done, no. before the water lines are run. Cows are going to need to drink a lot of water. Uh, so all, all year round. <laughs> yeah. So make sure you got all that taken care of. But once you're ready, infrastructure wise, what do you suggest as far as learn you know, about cows? So if if you're looking at a mini Jersey, don't go in there saying, oh, I, I'll never have to milk this cow. The calf will keep up because that's not true. So first say, OK, can I take a month out of a year and be able to milk twice, twice a day? You'll still have your 11 months out of a year. You still have a life. But. At first, you do need time to settle in to make sure she's not getting mastitis. Then learn about diseases in cows. So wherever you're looking to buy from, don't don't buy a cow that they're getting out of the dairy because she's a mastitis issue. Uh, find a farm where they do testing for common diseases that the cows have. See what her history is, mastitis, how she calves, how is she for breeding, is she easy to breed back. These are all things that if the cow is difficult in any of these areas, will really make for an unpleasant first cow experience. We have a saying that we talk a lot with our audience about, Jack. Um, a free cow isn't free. And that comes from a story we once were offered when we very first started looking at cows the first time around. Hmm. Somebody offered us a free full-size jersey. Hmm. We had gone, <clears throat> excuse me. We had gone to see this cow that was up on Craigslist. And, you know, we asked a bunch of questions and, you know, we're picking the guy's brain a little bit. And we just got the feeling like, hmm, there's something, this cow seems like a lot of, maybe she's a lot of work. Maybe she's a little bit of trouble. I don't know, but we just didn't feel right. He knew what we were doing on our homestead and he knew what we were up to. He saw our family. We left and he called us later. He said, hey, I really like you guys. I, I, I want this cow to go to a good home, a good family. You can have her for free. Now, you're talking to a guy who's got four little mouths to feed, who's in a, at the time I was doing construction work. So, you know, construction doesn't pay super well. And, you know, things were tight. And that seemed like, oh, man, a free cow. Let's jump at that. But we looked hard at each other. We said, you know what? A free cow isn't free. You still got to feed and care for this animal. And if there are problems we don't know about, we're going to have to take care of those vet, veterinary bills. It just, you know what? We said no. 
And it's a good thing we did. We waited till the time was right, till we could afford the right animal. Uh, Ladybug, our first cow, was a big investment. And these mini jerseys, they're not cheap. But she came from a farm that had disease tested. She had zero diseases. They had done extensive testing. Her genetics, some mini jerseys, uh, you'll find in their genetics other breeds. You'll find dwarfism issues. Ladybug was a pure 100% Jersey cow. Uh, so she cost us a lot. We had to save. My, my wife saved and saved for her. But when the time finally uh, finally came that we could get this cow, it was totally worth it. We've never had any issues with her. No mastitis, no birthing issues. She is blind in one eye, but we knew that going in. That was partially why we could actually afford her. Uh, and the person who sold it to us only sold it to us because she knew Kay had experience with large livestock. So she wasn't trying to unload a dud. She said, okay, I want this cow to go to someone who knows how to work around livestock. So they are a big investment at first, but it's worth finding a quality animal because when you do – we're years later here, Jack. We've had cows now for years and years. We've never had any health issues with our cows. Everything has gone smoothly. And that's not to say something, you know, livestock stuff happens. But that that investment has been well paid off over these years. Gotcha. Gotcha. So where can people go to learn more about um, about this and, and, and what, you know, what you guys are doing? You guys got a website and a YouTube channel, right? We got a we got everything, Jack. We got we started <laughs> off as everything. a podcast. <laughs> so we have a podcast called Homesteady, and we do right now. We're doing a weekly episode on our podcast. A lot of the podcast is interviews with other people, but we do share a lot of our story from time to time as well on the podcast. We have a YouTube channel called Homesteady, where right now we are doing 100 videos, uh, daily videos. Uh, and we're doing that to document, as I mentioned, we started up a camel dairy operation. So that'll be the next thing we talk to you on the show about. Um, yeah, focusing on, for us right now, feeding our family the best food we can. Because our newest baby had all these issues with food, it really opened our eyes to so many parents and people out there right now who are having issues with food. Yeah. Allergies, digestion issues that we, we hadn't seen before. So right now on the YouTube channel, you can find us doing everything from trying out our first cracky hydroponic garden like you talked about last week. Uh, I listened to that episode about three times to make sure I'm doing everything right. Uh, we have chickens. We have cows. We're going to be – oh, we just got sheep. Uh, we're getting pigs soon. Uh, so you can follow our daily videos and see how to grow a bunch of different food at your homestead uh, just by watching what we're doing. We have a website, which is thisishomesteady.com. And if you like the sound of our podcast and our videos and everything else we do, the best thing you can do is go to thisishomesteady.com. And on the homepage there, there's a button right in the center, big button that says join us. You click it, and then you'll be on our email list. And I send out once a week all our podcast episodes, all our YouTube videos, uh, our courses on our website. We have free homesteading video courses you can find everything there at thisishomesteady.com or just search Homesteady in whatever podcast place you listen or wherever you go for YouTube. Awesome, guys. Well, hey, this was a great interview and nice and upbeat, which is something we could all use right now. So I appreciate you all being <laughs> with us today. Uh, thanks a lot for spending about an hour with us. Thank Thanks, you. Jack.
So that was a really great interview. I uh, hope you enjoyed the discussion with those folks. And, you know, if you have the space, it might be something really to, to kind of consider uh, whether or not a cow is in your future, especially if you do it the way they did it, that gives you a lot more freedom where you're not always having uh, to be responsible for milking that cow. And if you do have bull calves, you know, you do have a, a great source of meat. And it's not that we can't eat cows. They're worth too much money to sell than they are to be uh, to be using them for meat, especially when you're talking about a breed like a, a miniature Jersey. Anyway, remember, one of the ways you can support this show other than being a member is by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day for you, I mentioned on yesterday's show, it's a pasta brand, Loro del Sud, which means gold of the south. It's an Italian... Um, Uh, pasta product. I have not uh, ordered this for myself. I probably won't. I am staying keto even through Apocalypse 2020, but I know a lot of you are short on staples, and you, a lot of you have family members who are short on staples. It stuff is overpriced right now. A 20-pound case of it is $65. Bucks. Usually you get pasta for, what, about two bucks a pound? Maybe three, right? This is a little bit more of a premium brand. There are some complaints on the reviews on YouTube, mostly that it's price gouging, a couple about packaging, which is probably handling by the, 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 uh, the mail service. Um, one on taste, but I just think that's moronic. I mean, dry pasta pretty much tastes the same no matter what brand you get. Um, this is a little bit better of a brand. Keith Snow said yesterday that he knows this brand and it is a well thought of brand. Um, you know, Italians tend to make pretty good pasta. Why am I bringing it to you though if I think it's a bit overpriced right now? Because we're in the middle of a pandemic and you can get a 20 pack shipped to your door for 65 bucks, including shipping. And you can get it within a week in most of your markets. And that's why. So I'm not saying this is the greatest pasta in the world. I'm just saying that, you know, if a family of four has a 20 pound box of pasta, they, they are going, they're not going to starve. Uh, because it's much larger than that when cooked, of course. That's a dry weight. Uh, and there's a lot of things you can do with pasta. It's very, very flexible. The downside of the stuff, because I'm not playing it up as the savior of humanity or the greatest thing on the planet. Number one is the 20-pound cases are not mix and match. So you pick a variety, elbow macaroni, linguine, whatever, and that's what you get. Um, that That's kind of the big downside. And you can only get 20 packs of it. But... Uh, anything that you can get like that that's shipping now is something I wanted you to be aware of. So it's it's not my typical item of the day where I'm really fond of it. It is, hey, look, if you need calories in your pantry, you can do it with this. And for many of you, I also think it's like this. You're well-stocked. You're well-prepared. In the words of John Pugliano, you're a prepper, not a pretender. But I bet you have family that are like, man, I don't know what to do. Man, I don't know what to do. Share this one with them. You know what? It's it's you know pretty much thirty days worth of calories, uh, at least dinner calories into the home for for sixty five bucks. Um, just because normally you can go to the grocery store and buy pasta for a couple three bucks a box, doesn't mean you can now. And again, with a lot more stay at home orders, and you know here's my thing. I know a lot of you are upset about the stay at home orders and all. I don't. I've said this so many times. I don't. I don't like the government to ever tell me what to do. I really don't. But I am pretty much living the way I would live right now if the government wasn't telling me to live this way. And I'm not going to not do it because they said to do it. I'm not a little child. I'm not like a little kid that really wants to go to my room, 
But when dad says go to your room, you're like, I'm not going, even though you actually would prefer just to go to your room, but you don't want to do it because you were told to. Like, I'm not going to behave that way. And, and honestly, right now, the best thing that we can do, and we can all do an after-action review of how this could have been done better, but we are where we are, right? The best thing we can do right now is spend as little time out as possible. So the more stuff you can get brought to you instead of having to go get it, the better off everybody is right now. So take that, take the information I gave you in my segment today on flattening the curve of treatment necessary in the hospital, not just the total infection rate. Put it all together. Let's get through this together in the next 30 days. And I promise you the world's going to look a lot different 30 days from now in a much better way. And it's going to look a lot worse in between. It's good, especially New York City. I put it to people this way today in social media. One of the reasons New York City looks so bad, New York City has about 302 square miles. That's, that's the entire square mileage of, of New York City, 302 square miles. And on that island of 302 square miles are 8.6 million people that live there. And travel in and out of that place on a daily basis before the restrictions is about 18 million. The population will swell to 18 million at any given time on New York City, right? Uh, the island of Manhattan. The area I live in of Dallas-Fort Worth is a pretty high population. It's about 7.2 million, just a little shy of a million less than New York City. But those 7.2 million people are spread off across 9,286 miles. So these densely populated areas with a highly contagious disease that spreads human-to-human -human contact, they're gonna, it's going to be ugly. There's going to be ugly spots throughout the country. But places like New York City are going to be really ugly. The good news is, and I, I'm completely convinced of this now, the curve has turned in Seattle. I know somebody's going to tell me, I have COVID. I didn't say there wasn't any of it. Um, They're not reporting anything. They said there's a bug or something. I don't think they want to say the good news. California's turned. I think Oregon has turned. That doesn't mean there isn't any. That doesn't even mean there's a lot less than yesterday. That means that they flattened and they're beginning to have less new cases. Even the CDC and the experts on the, the, the team uh, around Trump seem to be saying this. And they just started earlier. And I think you're going to see a lot of places begin to turn now over the next few weeks, but you're also going to see a peak of the death rate. And one thing you've got to understand in this so you don't lose your mind, the deaths will lag behind the turn. The deaths will lag behind the end. When we get to a point where you're getting very few new cases a day nationwide, you're going to still have significant deaths for about 15 to 20, even maybe 30 days out from people that went on ventilators but don't ever come off. The average length of time that somebody goes on a ventilator for this is over 30 days. That's one of the reasons it's such a problem. People clear the virus in you know, 10, 14 days generally. But when they're on a ventilator, even if they've, gotten, they've cleared the virus, the damage has been done. And that's why it's important that more of these treatments start being used by doctors earlier on to flatten that curve. And I think that's going to happen too, but... There is still just a massive number of people already already in the system. And so you'll keep seeing more. You're going to see more and more diagnoses because we have more testing and better testing now. Um, don't lose your head. In the end, the death rate of this is going to come out well under 1%. Especially if they do any sort of reasonable estimate of the number of undiagnosed cases. It's going to be well under 1%. Still a problem, but it's one we're going to get through together. 
With that, let's go ahead and wrap up with our song of the day today. Song of the day today is just a simple, funny song because it's April Fool's Day. So I said, no fooling. We won't do any fooling. But um, it's uh, it's called Drink More Beer by Rad- Rad- Rodney Carrington. So when your life's not going so well, here's my advice. Drink drink more beer. And I, I don't really want you to take that too seriously, but you know, every once in a while a drink makes life a little bit better. And in most places, the beer stores, and in many places even the liquor stores, are considered essential services and still open. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. If your job's about to kill you But you can't afford to quit it Best advice said I can give you Is drink more beer When your truck keeps overheating Cause your radiator's leaking Grab a brown bag at your feet And drink more And your house feels like a prison Stay real close to the fridge and drink more beer When your woman won't stop nagging About you getting on the wagon Lying sayer Can I help you?